0: A Focus Summary of Part 1, Chapters 2 and 3 of Silas Marner Transported to a new land, Silas Marner had lost his grip on his views of life, on his faith, and even on his past experiences. The walls, pews, pulpit, and people of Lantern Yard had been for him the home of religious emotions and God's kingdom on earth. Torn from that world, he had become unhinged from his old faith and love. Nothing about Ravelo, where men lived in careless abundance and with a less ardent faith, stirred a spiritual longing in Silas's benumbed soul. He felt no presence of the power he had trusted in at Lantern Yard, here in the town where he had taken refuge. Bitterness and frustrated belief had drawn a curtain across his life that left him in blackness." His first impulse after the shock had been to work in his loom, and that is what he had done unremittingly ever since. His daily life, spent only weaving, providing for his meals, and fetching water from the well, had been reduced to the unquestioning activity of a spinning insect. He gave no thought to the past, which was hateful to him, or the future, which was dark without his faith and he sought no fellowship from the strangers he had come amongst. His only other satisfaction was the pleasure he discovered the first time he was paid in gold. He had long enjoyed money as the symbol of earthly good and the reward of toil, but it had meant less to him when every penny had a purpose. Now that all purpose was gone, the gold became a satisfaction in itself." It was about that time that Silas ministered to Sally Oates. Recognizing in her the signs of dropsy, he gave her a preparation of herbs that had brought his mother relief. That Marner's stuff was a success, became the talk of the town, and all saw in it the character of the occult. He must, they concluded, be the same sort as the wise woman— who muttered to herself and tied red threads around children's toes to keep off water in the head. Silas found himself beset by visitors from Raveloe and beyond, desperate for him to treat all their ailments, and willing to pay. He turned them all away, saying he knew no charms and could work no cures, and thereafter every one of them who had an accident or a new attack blamed his ill will. So, his kindness toward Sally Oates served only to heighten the repulsion between him and his neighbors, and make his isolation more complete. Gradually, Silas's love of accumulating money became an absorbing passion. He had no purpose for it beyond the accumulation itself, and he found pleasure just in watching the heaps grow. He began to think of the coins as his companions— and would have been loath to trade them for others with unknown faces. He kept them in an iron pot, which he stored in a hole under some bricks beneath his loom. He gave little thought to the possibility of robbery. In Raveloe, people had not a bold enough imagination to rob their neighbor or to run away from the town. Year after year, Silas Marner's life hardened into a solitary existence of weaving and hoarding his trusting and dreamy eyes now looked as if they had been made only to narrowly seek one thing. Though he was not yet forty, he was withered and yellow, and the children referred to him as Old Master Marner. But a little incident happened which showed that Marner was not incapable of affection. Among his few possessions was a brown earthenware pot— that he kept always in the same spot, and that had become associated in his mind with the fresh, clear water he used it to collect. One day, on his return from the well, he stumbled, and the pot broke into pieces. He carried them home with grief in his heart, and propped the ruin together in its old place as a memorial. This was Marner's life for fifteen years with days spent at his loom, and nights spent bathing his hands in his gold. But at about Christmas of that fifteenth year, a great change came over Marner's life that mingled his history with the life of his neighbors. Squire Cass, a landed parishioner, was the greatest man in Raveloe. In this low-lying village, situated beneath the winds of change, the rich still ate and drank freely, and the poor still thought them entirely in the right to do so. In the season of merry-making, the rich of Raveloe gave large-scale feasts, each in succession, so that when the dishes of one had diminished, the guests only had to walk up the road to the next. These feasts provided everything that appetite could desire, but none in greater abundance than at squire Cass's. The squire's wife had died long ago, and her absence perhaps accounted for the abundance in the holiday provisions, the frequency of his visits to the rainbow, and the fact that his sons had turned out so ill. Squire Cass was criticized for keeping his sons home in idleness, and the second son, Dunstan, had a reputation for gambling that could not be dismissed as the sowing of wild oats." The neighbors cared little about what became of Dunsey, known as a spiteful, jeering fellow. But it would be a shame, they thought, if the good-natured Godfrey went down the same road. Of late he seemed to be, and if he went on in that way he might lose Miss Nancy Lammeter. All thought they were a handsome couple, and Miss Lammeter would make an excellent mistress of the Cass household, where she might save the old squire from his squandering ways." But, they observed, Nancy had begun to look shyly on Godfrey, and he didn't look so fresh-colored as he used to. On a November afternoon in Silas's fifteenth year in Raveloe, Godfrey was standing by the fire in his father's parlor, with a look of gloomy vexation on his face. The door opened, and in came a thick-set young man with a face flushed from intoxication— Godfrey's expression changed from one of gloom to hatred. Even the spaniel retreated to a corner at his entrance. Dunsey asked Godfrey mockingly what he wanted with him, and Godfrey responded savagely that he wanted the money that was owed to him. Godfrey had given the rent money of a tenant named Fowler to Dunsey, Thinking Fowler hadn't paid, Squire Cass, who was short of cash himself, was threatening to use legal means to seize it from him. Dunsey responded sneeringly that Godfrey would find a way to get the money himself. If he was kind enough to lend it to him, he was kind enough to pay it back, too. When Godfrey threatened to knock him down, Dunsey reminded him that he had the power to get Godfrey turned out of house and home, by telling the squire the secret of his illicit marriage to a woman named Molly." When, seizing him by the arm, Godfrey cried that he had no money and could get no money, Dunsey cavalierly suggested that he sell his horse Wildfire at the hunt the next day. Godfrey initially dismissed the idea, because, among other things, he was to attend a party the next night where he would see Nancy Lameder. Realizing this, Dunsey mockingly suggested that maybe Godfrey's first wife could help his chances by taking an overdose of laudanum and leaving him a widower. Quivering and pale, Godfrey felt pushed to the point that maybe it would be better just to tell Squire Cass the whole truth himself, since even if Duncy didn't, Molly herself might. But, though physically strong, Godfrey was cowardly and irresolute and here he felt any action he took would bring dreadful consequences. Rather than confess and face disinheritance and the certain loss of Nancy, he would fall back on the possibility that neither Duncy nor Molly would betray him. Worried he had gone too far, Dunstan offered the appeasing suggestion that he take Wildfire to the hunt and make the sale himself. He was a better bargainer, anyway— and Godfrey could attend the party. With a few final warnings and threats that there better be no nonsense, Godfrey grudgingly gave in and sent Dunstan on his way. Godfrey was left to idle rumination on his personal circumstances. Even our rural forefathers, in their lives of listlessness and monotony, felt the keen point of sorrow or remorse." That was the condition of Godfrey Cass, who, partly due to a trap laid for him by Dunstan, had been urged into a secret marriage that was a blight on his life. It would have been easier on him if he could blame only Dunstan's diabolical cunning, but he also cursed his own vicious folly. For four years he had wooed Nancy Lameter with a patient worship and welcomed her bettering influence on his vacant life but the hope of this paradise had not saved him from his self-destructive course. Now all he could do was ward off the evil day when his ugly secret would be disclosed, and he would be banished forever from his home and from Nancy's esteem. The longer he could delay the terrible moment, the more chance there was that something might save him, and the more opportunity there was for him to gratify his need to see Nancy. It was this yearning that drove him to trust Wildfire to Dunstan, coupled with the fact that the hunt would be held near the market town where Molly lived. Looking for a way to pass the time, Godfrey decided to go to the Rainbow, and as he walked out he ignored the spaniel who had been waiting patiently for his caress.